Let me ask you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 12. As we return to and continue our study through the gospel according to Mark. This morning we'll look at Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, and see, at least in part, the group that Jesus just pronounced all of those woes to, as they try to set him up and trap him and think that they have the ability to outsmart the very Son of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17, please follow along as I read. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But... Knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have now to study your word. And we pray that you would give us the wisdom that we need and the humility that we need and the teachable hearts that we need in order to receive the nourishment of your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word We thank you even that it doesn't always answer every question we have and then forces us to, instead of only look at it and walk away quickly, to think about it, to meditate on it. We rejoice to know, Lord, that you have given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we ask for the wisdom now to be able to discern the meaning of your word and to be able to apply it into the particulars of life. We believe what you say, Lord, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so we say, speak, O Lord, for your servants are listening. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it has been said that there are three things that you do not talk about in polite company. Politics, religion, and money. You may or may not be familiar with that old adage, those three things you should never talk about in polite company, but I almost guarantee you that you have been in quote-unquote polite company when someone has chosen to speak about one of those topics. And you know that in mixed company or polite company, when you're supposed to just kind of keep it casual, keep it cordial, just make it about small talk, you know what it's like when the conversation takes a turn into one of those categories, and most especially when you know that there are people who do not agree about those 
categories. You know the awkwardness of it. You know the uneasy feeling that you get in your stomach as you watch it unfold, as you watch tempers begin to flare and faces begin to turn red and you figure out a way or at least pray to God that you can figure out a way to politely excuse yourself from the conversation because it's awkward it's difficult it's weird sometimes but not for Jesus in this passage here all three things that you are not supposed to talk about in polite company get brought up. Politics, religion, and money. Today, of course, those are hot-button issues, most especially in light of the last few years and just the difficulty of trying to figure out what it looks like to navigate this life as both a citizen of heaven and a citizen on earth. But in Jesus' day, oh, it was far far worse. There was so much more controversy surrounding these particular issues, and especially this particular question. It was no sort of off-the-cuff question that the Pharisees and the Herodians asked Jesus. No, no, no. The plan was put in place. The trap was set, and Jesus walks right into it and completely demolishes it as he demonstrates, again, his authority and his wisdom. What they failed to consider as they thought about the political climate of their day, as they thought about the religious climate of their day, and even as they thought about the taxation system of Rome in their day, they thought about all of those things, but what they failed to consider was who it was that they had picked a fight with. They had no idea... For instance, that the scriptures prophesied that this one, Jesus, would be, as, Psalm, uh, as Isaiah 11, 1-2 says, a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. You see, these spirit-lacking hypocrites had no idea what they were up against with a spirit-filled Messiah. They thought that they had him in the perfect question, the perfect scenario to set him up in an effort to get back at him for the audacity that he had just the previous day to go into the temple, the temple they thought belonged to them, and to not just cleanse it, but to clear it, to pronounce judgment upon it, and to enact, just like an Old Testament prophet, that one day, some 40 years from then, God would destroy that temple because he was done with it. They did not consider the wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, but that is exactly what we see, and it is exactly what we need to think about this morning. I think as we take this passage, 
I think it might be best for us to, to break it up into two parts. Let's look at the trap, and then let's look at the way that Jesus gets himself out of the trap, and then we'll pull out a couple of lessons that we can learn. Certainly, we can't learn everything there is to know about political theology. In fact, that's not even what Jesus intends to teach us here, though it certainly forms a, a important passage for the basic development of a biblical and a political theology. But that's not really what Mark is going for. Mark is showing us once again that Jesus is not going to be outwitted by those who thought that they were in Israel's leadership. And so let's look first of all at verses 13 to 14 at the hypocrites and their trap. The hypocrites and their trap. Mark tells us in verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. We've seen in the the gospel according to Mark already, these two groups, this unlikely pair, team up against Jesus already. You may remember back in chapter 3, after Jesus heals the man with a withered hand in the synagogue, Mark chapter 3 verse 6 says the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him seeking how to destroy him. So from Mark's gospel, almost at the very beginning of it, this particular group, the Pharisees and the Herodians, had been doing their best to figure out how to wipe Jesus out, how to destroy him. And this, as Jesus has come into his city and come into his temple, this is one of the points of culmination of their desire to destroy him. Who's the they that Mark is talking about? Well, we've seen this group already as they've taken on Jesus and challenged his authority in his temple. Look back to chapter 11. And beginning in verse 28, it says, They said to him, this group of chief priests and scribes and elders who come to him, they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And so you may or may not remember, but those are the groups that comprise the governing council of Israel, known as the Sanhedrin. Within the Sanhedrin and within those elders, were groups of Pharisees and groups of Sadducees. And so Jesus, in the passage just before this, has told the parable of the tenants. And he's done that to give an overview of Israel's history and to hone in on the religious hypocrites of of the Sanhedrin, the hypocrisy of the leaders of the people of Israel. And now, in this passage, first up to test him, the first group from that leadership group, from that supposed governing authority, were the Pharisees along with the Herodians. But if you drop down to verse 18, you'll see that next up was the Sadducees. They tried to take a swing at him, just like the Pharisees and the Herodians. And then if you'll drop down to verse 28... Next up was the scribes. But the truth is, none of them could trap Jesus. None of them could outsmart Jesus. None of them could outwit Jesus. 
So Mark tells us who it was that comes to him, and he tells us what it was that they wanted to do. They came having been sent by the Sanhedrin. This is an official delegation. This is a well-thought-out plan. And their intention was to trap Jesus in his talk. This is the one and only time this word trap is used in the New Testament. It's taken from a hunting context. It's not just a trap, but it's a trap to kill. You don't set a bear trap in the woods so that you can pet the bear. Right? They're not setting a trap for Jesus so that they can kind of figure him out. This trap spawns from their evil intention to destroy him. We talked about it all the way back in chapter 3, and so I'm sure you remember that. But let's go over this again. The Herodians and the Pharisees were not, a, were not buddies. They were not friends in any regard. The Pharisees being the ultra-religionists. They were devoted, they thought, to the law of God. So much so, they thought that they would add their own law to the law of God. The Herodians were devoted to the, the family of Herod, who was devoted to the empire of Rome. Now, given what you understand, even if you don't know that much history about the New Testament, do you think that religious elitists like the Pharisees, who were, in their own minds at least, devoted to Israel, would be a likely companionship to those who were devoted to government, most especially the government that had oppressed your nation? We couldn't be talking about two different, two, two different sets of people. They were polar opposites. But you'll notice how Jesus tends to bring people together. We often think of Jesus bringing people together in something like this. Jesus has brought us together so that we would love him and love one another. And that's why we're here today, right? But you'll remember that Psalm 2 points out very clearly, and we can see it over and over again throughout the Gospels, that it is also not love for Jesus that brings people together, but also hatred for Jesus that brings people together. These two groups would have had nothing to do with one another had they not had a common enemy. You can almost hear the clock ticking on the time bomb that they thought they had set for Jesus. You can almost feel the sting of the venom that is in their lips when they spew these words out towards Jesus. I think that as we work our way through this passage, we've seen their, we've seen their intention, and now in verse 14, we see their, their setting of the trap, not just the intention, but now the initiation of the trap. And I think that as we look at that, what we will see quite clearly given what we know already about the Pharisees and the Herodians, what we will see is that we must be careful 
with what people say to us. Verse 14 sounds like godly speech, doesn't it? But behind this godly speech, this veneer of godly speech, is demonic and devilish intent. They don't mean a single word of it, although every single word of it is absolutely true. Verse 14, they came and said to him, teacher. First of all, they begin their dialogue with Jesus by honoring him, by calling him teacher. You didn't call just anybody teacher. This was reserved for the rabbis. This was reserved for men who traveled around with an entourage of disciples in order to teach and instruct them. You had to have a recognized position, most especially for the Pharisees, to call you teacher. So they honor him and they create this idea, at least in their own minds and probably in the minds of the onlookers, that this is an innocent question that they've got. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. They not only honor him by calling him teacher, secondly, they also acknowledge that Jesus is not swayed by what anybody else thinks. Jesus isn't tempted to look out on the faces of a crowd that gather to hear him teach and assess who's there so that he can cater the message so that the people will like it. Jesus just says what's true. And not only do they acknowledge that, but they also say, for you are not swayed by opinions, by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Not only does Jesus not care about anyone's opinion, he doesn't consider anyone in a partiality setting. He, he doesn't fear what anyone thinks. He doesn't show partiality in any way. Literally, it's you don't look on the face of someone. But instead, you truly teach the way of God. Jesus, we know you say it like it is. And so we've got a question for you. But I ask you, if they really thought that, wouldn't they have been listening to Jesus the whole time? So, I, As I was preparing for this and thinking about this and I read and and heard a lot of people talk about how it must have pained the Pharisees and pained the Herodians to say these things. But I don't think it did. I think they loved saying it. You know why? Because they thought they had gotten the best of Jesus with this one. You see, when your heart is so corrupt that you'll set a trap for someone like this, You'll say anything and do anything in order to accomplish your task of destruction. I think the Pharisees loved it because they certainly thought, we're going to get them this time. This is going to work. It reminds me of the psalmist and how one of the themes throughout the psalms is this prayer that God would ensnare his enemies, the psalmist's enemies, in their own trap. 
And here we have it. Here we have it. And so I'm sure with a smile on their face, with sincere looks, in fact, you'll notice that it's just some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians that were sent, probably they would have conspired and thought to themselves, okay, now Jesus has seen some of us. So we need to send those of us whom Jesus has not seen so that he won't see it coming. I'm sure they thought, we've got them now. We'll use the international language of flattery, and surely he'll fall for it. Isn't that what flattery is intended to do? Puff a person up, make you feel good about yourself? You see, this is, a, this is the jab right before you set up the hook. It softens you up, it catches you off guard, and then bam, they thought they are going to deal the knockout blow. The Proverbs have quite a bit to say about flattery. And suffice it to say that it is a sin. It's a sin to make someone feel good about themselves when you really don't mean it at all. Not just the Proverbs, but also the Psalms. Listen to Psalm 5, 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Or Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering mouth works ruin. Or Proverbs 29, 5, which perfectly describes this situation. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. Let's just pause for a moment and and learn this morning that we need to, number one, be careful of flatterers. Don't fall for the schemes of those who want to just make you feel good about yourself. And number two, if you don't think that it's true about someone, don't say it. How easy is it to want to give someone some encouragement, but at the same time, feel like you don't have a whole lot of capital to work with in the department of encouragement, and so instead, you just sort of start reaching for words, and before you know it, you've said things that if you were all by yourself, you would have never said about that person. It's easy, isn't it? Now, we need to genuinely think of things that we are grateful for about people. Flattery is a sin, but encouragement is not. Encouragement is godly. But let's make sure that we mean it. And let's make sure that we're not deceived by those who would try to flatter in order to win us emotionally to where they want us to be. Which is exactly what the Pharisees and the Herodians were trying to do. They were trying to soften Jesus up. But we must beware, just like Jesus was, of godly speech with devilish intent. Just because it sounds good, just because there might be a few Bible verses quoted, does not mean that it is good. You know who knows how to quote the Bible? Satan. 
That's what he tried to fight Jesus with. But just like these hypocrites, he was outwitted by the wisdom of Jesus. And so they, they set the trap, they, they begin to lay the trap by flattery, and then the second half of verse 14, they ask Jesus a trick question in order to try to get him to step into the trap. They've flattered him, and now here comes the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them, or should we not? Now notice, They appeal to the law, but in our minds, we're probably thinking when we hear law, we think about the law of the land, the law of the nation, local laws, but to them, they're not appealing to the laws of Rome. They're appealing to the laws of God. Essentially, the question is, is God okay with us paying taxes to Caesar? Is it biblical to pay taxes to Caesar? Which even today is a bit of a hot-button question, isn't it? I mean, let's take a poll. Raise your hand if you love paying taxes. That's an easy one, right? Nobody loves paying taxes. I'm not going to ask the opposite end of that question. Raise your hand if you hate paying taxes, because I'll leave that between you and the Lord. No one likes paying taxes. No one likes seeing the money that they earned taken away from them. But we all do like working roads. I'm deeply grateful that there's an actual bridge over the Applegate River. So it can be a good thing, certainly. But they think that they have got Jesus in the most perfect question they could ever devise. As the Pharisees and the Herodians put their brains together, they come up with this question, and it's a difficult question even today. Nobody likes paying taxes, but back then, oh, this, this was the question. The particular tax that they asked Jesus about seems to be what was called the poll tax or the head tax. It was initiated in A.D. 6 when Jesus was just an infant by Rome. And very quickly, it was rebelled against by a Jew named Judas, not the betrayer, but Judas from Galilee. So especially in Galilee, the northern territory, this tax was not popular. The reality is nowhere in Israel was this tax popular. So when this tax began in 86, Judas, the Galilean, led a rebellion against Rome, and it really didn't take Rome all that long to squash that rebellion. But it would be another 40 years or so after this question that this very same issue would lead Israel to revolt again from Roman rule under the inspiration of Judas and his rebellion about this tax in AD 66, which would then send the Roman army to decimate Jerusalem and destroy the temple in AD 70. And why did all of that happen? Well, it happened mostly because of this question. So you think taxes and Caesar and government are an issue today? Imagine living back then when, not, when you were not living in a free nation, but you were living in a nation that was oppressed by the brutal 
vicious Roman Empire. Judas led the rebellion, and Judas thought when this tax was instituted that any Jew who would pay it, he says, quote, this is according to Josephus, they were cowards if they would endure to pay a tax to the Romans and would, after God, submit to mortal men as their lords. So Judas said, if you Jews submit to a man, then you're a coward. That sounds like we've heard that in the last couple years or so, doesn't it? You do something that Caesar says, you're a coward. So we, we in the last few years, we, we feel at least a little bit the tension that this question created. So they set their trap. They deliver this question. And you'll notice also, it's not just a question about what's lawful, but it's also a complicated question turned to a yes or no question. Beware of those as well. You can't take a complicated issue like this and say, should we pay it? Should we not pay it? It's as simple as that. No, actually, it's not as simple as that. But the evil intention of their heart wants to boil it down and make it so simple that they give Jesus one of two options because they think if he says yes, we should pay it, then he's going to lose all of Israel, most especially the zealots, and the zealots, even his own disciple, may just kill him themselves. If he says no, don't pay the tax, well then Rome's going to come and get him and they'll take care of this problem named Jesus. So Jesus, we're going to give you two options here. Option one, we disown you. Option two, Rome kills you. Which, would, which one of those options would you like, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, actually, there's a third option here. And then we move, first of all, from the hypocrites in their, in their trap to the Son of God in his wisdom in verses 15 to 17. We've left with this question, this option one, option two, and then we have the response of Jesus, which just as another illustration of his authority demonstrates his wisdom. And they can't even see it. You notice, first of all, just like he did with the challenging of his authority at the end of chapter 11, Jesus immediately assumes command of this conversation. Look at verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? There he goes, breaking the rules again. You can't answer a question with a question. What is he thinking? Not only does he answer their question with a question, but then he gives them a command. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Jesus doesn't break a sweat as he diffuses this ticking time bomb. It's no skin off his teeth. He doesn't flinch. You notice that Mark highlights whether by divine omniscience or his overwhelming wisdom, Jesus knows their hypocrisy. 
He knows it's a fake. He knows it's a trick. He knows it's a trap. So he spots it, and he calls it out by asking them, why put me to the test? Why put me to the test? There's someone else in the Gospel of Mark that put Jesus to the test. Do you remember who that was? It was Satan. Satan tempted or tested Jesus in the wilderness. And if Jesus beats Satan, he's surely going to beat these numbskulls. Why put me to the test? Well, because that's what the wicked do. They devise schemes and they plot and they plan and they test and they trap and they trick. And they'll just keep doing it until they get what they want. So he asks him, why put me to the test? And then he gives a command, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. A denarius would be what you would use, a coin that was a day's wage. This would be what you would use to pay the particular tax that they're talking about. And you'll notice implied in the command is the fact that Jesus does not have in his possession a denarius. But who does have a denarius, the coin of issue here? They do. And they brought one. Bring me a denarius so I can look at it, and they bring one. They think that they can trap Jesus in this trick. He doesn't have a denarius on him, possibly because in Galilee, they didn't use these coins. These were much more common in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jesus was now at, So it could be uh, uh, just based on where he lived, but most likely it was just that Jesus didn't care to have a denarius. But the very thing that they wanted to trick him with and trap him in, they were in possession of, which automatically tells, should have told them and certainly tells us whether they thought Caesar's rule was invalid or not, they lived as though it was. If you question Caesar, why carry Caesar's money? Right? So Jesus sets a trap of his own, doesn't he? And they don't even see it coming. Bring me a denarius, let me look at it. And they bring it, and he says to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? So you can just imagine, and you can actually Google what this would have looked like, and you can buy these as well. You can imagine Jesus taking the coin and probably doing something like this, holding it up, looking at it, and asking, whose likeness and inscription is this? He knows, right? He knows the answer to the question. He's just looked at it. But he's setting his own trap. And they walk right into it. This coin, this denarius, would have been, uh, in fact, you can Google, like I said, pictures of what this one would have actually looked like. It would have had an an inscription, or a likeness rather, or an image of the the Caesar at the time, Tiberius Caesar. It had his picture on it, and it also had an inscription on it which read, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. So it was a claim of at least two things. The claim, number one, was that Caesar Augustus was God 
or to the Romans, a God, because it didn't matter how many gods you had. Caesar Augustus was a God, which made Tiberius, Caesar Augustus' son, the son of God. So those two claims, Caesar Augustus is God, and Tiberius Caesar is the son of God, and then, to top it all off, it had on it an image which was idolatrous and blasphemous to the Jew. But then if you flipped it over, it had an inscription or an image of Tiberius's mother, Livia, who was an awful, wicked, sinful human being. And an inscription underneath that, which said, High Priest. On the one side, you had an image which was blasphemy. And you had an inscription, which was double blasphemy. And then on the back, you had an image of a woman presented as the high priest. To the Jew, this was a walking, okay, it didn't walk, but you put it in your pocket so you walked with it, idol. oozed idolatry. And so this is another reason why they think, well, if we can just get Jesus in this trick question, there's no way he's going to win. Jesus goes one way, Israel disowns him. Jesus goes the other way, Rome kills him. So Jesus asks, whose inscription, whose likeness is this? And then they answer the question completely unaware that the very fact that they were in possession with the coin implicates them in what they're trying to get Jesus stuck in. They say to him, Caesar's. And then Jesus deals the knockout blow. Verse 17, Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Jesus uses a different word now than pay. He says to render to Caesar, which was a word that that didn't just mean to give, but meant to give what is owed. So Jesus says, give to Caesar what is owed to Caesar, acknowledging, essentially, yes, you pay the tax. But then he raises the bar. Give to Caesar what you owe Caesar, but you need to give to God what you owe God. You see, their minds and eyes were set on the wrong kingdom altogether. They were so caught up with what they could see in front of them. They were so stuck on the political situation that they lived in under the oppression of Rome that they simply stopped thinking about what it was that they owed God. Isn't that the mark of a good distraction? Take your eyes off of what matters most and put your eyes on an issue that is important, but not as important. So Jesus answers their question, yes, you need to pay the tax, but he doesn't do it in a way that's as simple as a yes or no question. 
You see, they, they want an either-or answer, but Jesus gives them a sort of both-and. Jesus essentially acknowledges, you live under the rule of Caesar, Pharisees and Herodians, then you give to Caesar what's his. It has Caesar's face on it, just give it back to him. But Jesus also wants them to understand the thing that they were failing over and over and again to understand that just as the coin bore the, in, bore the appearance or the, uh, the image of Caesar, they bore the image of God. But they were more concerned about the image of Caesar than the image of God. So in Jesus' answer, we can understand there are some things that belong to Caesar, but everything belongs to God. Psalm 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, whether they acknowledge it or not. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. In this case, what was it that they owed Caesar? What was it that was to be rendered to Caesar? Well, in this case, it was the coin in question. But what was it that they owed God? What were they to render to God? It was bigger than just a coin, wasn't it? It was their whole selves. What did the law they claimed to appeal to in the question, what did the law tell them? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And yet, what were they doing? They were planning on how to kill the Lord their God. You see, their opposition to Jesus united them together in this evil scheme. And Jesus blew it up. But we understand that the reality is that nothing has changed, has it? Opposition to Jesus still unites people together in evil schemes. But Jesus still blows it up. They had the audacity to be in God's temple, talking to the Son of God, in possession of a blasphemous coin, and trying to trap Jesus in a question they were certain was going to get him killed. And yet, they claimed to be doing it with the blessings of God. They claim to care about what it was that the law said, but that very same law also, I'm pretty sure, had restrictions on murder, on deceit. But they didn't care. 
In fact, they didn't care so much that later on in the trial of Jesus, Luke tells us that this same group claimed that Jesus taught that they were not supposed to pay their taxes to Caesar. And that's one of the things that they used to bring him before the court and to try him and to get him sentenced to death. So then as Jesus drops his wisdom on them, notice at the very end how they respond. And they marveled at him. This is a strong word. It's not really even just marveled. It's more like, and their jaws hit the floor at him. You see, even Jesus' enemies can acknowledge his wisdom. But marveling at Jesus is not the same thing as believing in Jesus. Haven't we seen that over and over again in the Gospels? You can like Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus. You can say all kinds of good things about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus. You can marvel at Jesus. You can be in awe of Jesus. You can love the wisdom of Jesus, but that doesn't mean that you believe in Jesus. So my friend, as Jesus has made it crystal clear, you belong to God. And so I would simply ask you, have you given and do you give everything you are and everything you have to God? There are things, at least for now, that you're going to have to give to the government. But the more important question is, do you give to God what you owe God? I think we'll finish with just three lessons quickly as we think about this. We can't, as I said, build an entire political theology about this. The last few years have caused us to have to think more clearly and more specifically about things that we in this nation just really didn't have to think about. And so there have been, even in the last couple of years, some excellent resources produced to think about this, but those are all secondary to what's happening here. Important, legitimate, but secondary. So the first lesson for us that we should walk away with is this. Jesus possesses superior wisdom. Jesus possesses superior wisdom. This is an extension of the reality of who he is. And you may say to yourself, well, I'm really glad that Jesus possesses superior wisdom, but what does that do for me right here and now? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because James 1, 5 to 8 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So Jesus possesses superior wisdom, and that's good news for the Christian who understands that Jesus, in his wisdom, outwitted the plan of the Pharisees and used his own crucifixion to purchase a people for his own possession. It's good news to us because the reality is, while Jesus possesses superior wisdom, he also gives it out to his people. 
to those who ask for him and believe that he will give it. He gives it. And then the second lesson for us is that Jesus cannot be outdone. Jesus cannot be outdone. Again, they try to outsmart him, but they can't. They simply can't. Earlier in the ministry of Jesus, we didn't see it in Mark's gospel, but the people tried to stone him and they couldn't. Jesus just walked right through the crowd. You see, this Jesus is the very same sovereign son of God who spoke all things into existence and who holds all things together. And he's also the very same son of God who laid his life down just a few days after this. Not because he was outdone by his enemies, but because it was the plan of God and necessary in order to offer you and offer me forgiveness of our sins. Jesus' cross was not an example of him being outdone by his enemies, but yet another example of how the wisdom of God prevails over the wisdom of man every single time. And so Peter says in Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. If you are ever tempted to think that the Lord may be outdone by the evil of man or that the Lord's people, including you, might be outdone by the evil of man. Think about the cross. Think about the cross. God will never be outdone by the evil of man. He is so good and so powerful that he uses every bit of it for his glory, and for the good of his people. And then the third and final lesson, Jesus has given us what we need to live as citizens of heaven and citizens on earth. Jesus has given us what we need to live as citizens of heaven and citizens on earth. The mistake that the Pharisees and the Herodians thought was to think that Caesar and God were somehow in contradiction with one another. Now, when Caesar steps into a realm that's not his, he is in contradiction with God. But Jesus teaches not two two, two radically opposed kingdoms, but what he teaches is that there are compatible kingdoms as long as we know what belongs to whom. Philippians 3.20 reminds Christians that our citizenship is, for, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, which means our allegiance is to something greater than anything that will ever be found in this life. And yet, it is right and good to work for the good of the place, community, nation that you live in. And so there are spheres of authority that God has created with him, of course, being sovereign over all of it. Romans 13, 1 to 7, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. 
And those that exist have been instituted by God. You see, what the Pharisees and the Herodians failed to understand was that it was God who put Caesar in charge. And it was God who let the Romans take over much of the known world. God did that. Because God has a habit of delegating his authority even down to people like parents. And yet, God is still sovereign over all of that authority. 1 Peter 2, 13 to 17, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And then again, 1 Timothy 2, 1-4. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there is a a right submission, a right subjection to authority, because God is the one that has set it into place. But what do we do when that authority steps outside of its bounds? Acts 4, 18 to 20, the Sanhedrin calls Peter and John, it says, so they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And then Acts 5, 27 to 29, that same group, it says, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Now, the challenging part, as we have seen in the last few years, is that we don't always agree how to do that, do we? But that doesn't change the fact that Jesus has given us everything we need to figure that out. It's just that we also must bear the fruit of the Spirit and the patience that it takes to work it out together. And we may land on different points of how exactly that works to live as a responsible citizen of the United States or whatever country you may be in, and also, and more importantly, to live as a responsible citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We might land on different points, but as long as we keep our eyes on the same Savior, the Lord will give us the wisdom that we need to figure it out. So may God grant us that wisdom to know exactly how it is that we are supposed to walk this out. Let's pray together. Lord, we do ask for your wisdom and your help in figuring out how to live as citizens of the kingdom of heaven in 
this world. We know what you say about this world, and yet we know that it is not your will to take us out of this world, but to leave us in this world, because this world needs salt and it needs light. This world needs a witness. This world needs to hear the gospel. Because we at one time belonged to this world until you saved us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us the very same wisdom and that you would give us an awe of your own wisdom so that we would remember that you are building your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And while we will take up certain important themes like politics, there is nothing that is more important than the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is nothing that is more important than the salvation of the souls of the lost. So Lord, help us, gift us, and equip us to navigate political theology. But even more so, help us and gift us and equip us to preach the gospel and to stand firmly on the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.